Amen. Would you go in your Bible and uh, buckle in as well? Uh, if you're looking for your buckle, it should be on the left side of your seat, but uh, buckle in this morning. Hebrews chapter number two, we're going to back up just a little bit. Our new verse, uh, or our new material, I should say, is going to be found in verse 14, 15, but we're going to have to back up um, because this passage uh, uh, certainly necessitates uh, context, and that's true of every single passage of the Bible, uh, but uh, Hebrews, I feel like the ramp might be a little bit longer, if you understand what I mean. The runway's a little longer, and uh, so in order to get to a particular verse, you've got to be able to back up a little bit more than maybe you would need to uh, in other situations, but Hebrews is an exception to that uh, in that uh, you might need to do it a little bit more uh, in these particular passages. Well, let me cover just a couple of quick announcements while we're going after it. Uh, Family Olympics is tonight, and I'm looking forward to being able to be back uh, tonight, being able to be pr- uh, preaching. I-, I think I'm covering, and I don't know even yet. I'm going to have to pray through the day. Uh, I've got, uh, I had such a large message this morning. It's now two parts, and it almost became three parts. And uh, I hope that that is something that doesn't bother you. I hope that you realize when you go to a passage of Scripture, there's normally there more there than you might realize. And uh, so I want to make sure to give diligent attention to the topics at hand. And so we might preach that tonight. We might preach a different message. I'm still praying on how the Lord will lead for that, but I am excited to be back tonight. I'm excited to be able to fellowship and communi- uh, have community with each other and uh, competition and just have a good time uh, with God's people. And Family Olympics is a great way to do that. But I'm more excited about what's coming up on this Wednesday night, our faith groups. And uh, we are going to have a good time about that. And uh, we'll, we'll announce a little bit more in the main service, the different classes, the sign-up sheets are in the back. And and uh, make sure you get signed up to a community class or a faith group class uh, on uh, Wednesday night, starting this Wednesday night here at Faith. And so men's retreats just around the corner as well. We'll see more about that in main hour as well. Well, let's jump into it. Hebrews chapter number two, verse number nine. We've already prayed, so we're going to run right at it. It says, but we see Jesus. Now, real quick, the entire book of Hebrews is built upon Jesus. It is all about Jesus Christ. All of the doctrines that you're going to find in here are going to be set. Are, are what would they might call Christocentric or Christ-centered. Uh, it's all about Christ. And we've established from the beginning, you'll see it again, we're actually going to get a new glimpse into Jesus is better than fill in the blank. We're going to uh, jump into a new chapter. Um, if you, I don't, I don't actually mean chapter three to chapter two, but in chapter three, we're going to deal with Jesus is better than Moses. We've already seen Jesus is better than angels. And systematically, the author of Hebrews is going through, I, I really, I, I, it, it, I shudder to use the word idol because angels were never meant to be idols. And Moses was certainly never meant to be an idol. But no no thing the human heart worships was ever intended by God to be worshipped by the human heart. Uh, but it tends to happen. The heart of man worships. And uh, we were, my wife and I, we were in a uh, on vacation. We were at a pizza place and there were some college sports on. And, and my wife commented how like fanatical people get about college football. And, uh, and I kind of made the statement because I, I just, everything is, you know, Bible to me. I just, my wife's like, you can't watch a movie without, you know, there being some biblical theme. It's just how my brain works. But I said, the reason that college sports is so big is because the human heart is made to worship. It will worship something. It can worship a football team. Uh, it can worship a person. It can worship angels. It can worship uh, a patriarch. It can worship a, uh, a man like Moses, which certainly was the condition. And so when I, when I say that word idolatry, uh, 
Uh, I'm not saying that it was Moses' fault. It was certainly not. It was the children of Israel's fault. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 3, you're going to find that Moses was faithful in all his household. He was, in, in many ways, a type of Jesus Christ. He was faithful to the mission the Father had given him. And that, again, is a type of Jesus Christ. And so, but Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 9 says, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, might, uh, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And uh, obviously I wasn't here last week, so we didn't develop anything. But the last time we were together, two weeks ago, we did develop that passage and that idea and understanding um, that, again, I think the, the best reading of that idea that Christ is made lower than the angels is that he is made under the law of the angels previously established in this chapter. And that's going to carry through the rest of the text as well just a little bit. In fact, it says it right here. He was made lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death. That law given by angels brought the penalty of death with it. Um, and so he was crowned with glory and honor that he, might, uh, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Verse number 10 is where it got a little bit, the, you had to know who was him, um, if that makes sense. Verse number 10, we won't spend a lot of time. It says, for it became him, you might think he's talking about Jesus, but it's actually talking about the father. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. So that's a reference to God the Father. In bringing many sons to glory, well, that's us, to make the captain, that's Jesus, of there, that's us, salvation perfect through suffering. And we understand that Jesus wasn't made perfect in the idea of less sinful because Christ is sinless. He is perfect in every capacity. Uh, however, this word idea, this idea of perfect just means more able. And that's hard to wrap our minds around. Um, if we, if we, if we uh, subtract the eternality of God, God has always been able because he is in yesterday and he is in tomorrow. He is outside of time. And so he, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world made God able to save humanity, okay? And so that's my, that's my uh, disclaimer. But now I'm going to jump into what is being said in the text. What's being said in the text, Christ was perfected in that he was now made able to redeem mankind. Um, that price, again, in the eternal mind of God was always settled. And so folks in the Old Testament and the New Testament could be saved because that, that price was already settled. But I, I hesitate to say it, but I'm going to say it. And this is, this is why the book of Hebrews is, is kind of, you got to tiptoe, you got to be careful. Outside of the cross, the Father could not redeem us, okay? And that's hard to say because you're saying, well, is there something God can't do? Well, yes, outside of the cross, God can't save us because he's a perfect and a just and holy God. And a perfect and a just and holy God has to bring things into reconciliation. There has to be a balance. He has to make atonement. He can't just ignore it. He can't just close his eyes and plug his ears and turn, turn the other way and say, you know what, Dave, he's a good dude. Let him in. He can't do that. And again, that's hard to verbalize because God can do anything, anything. And that, 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 drum, that drum is beaten. But at the same time, apart from the sacrifice of Christ, God cannot save us. And because of the sacrifice of Christ, we can be saved. And that is the word reconciliation, which you're going to see in, I believe, it's chapter number three. So let's keep reading in verse number 11. For both he that sanctifieth, okay, that's Christ, and they who are sanctified, well, that's us, are all of one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, which is a beautiful reality that we are in community with Christ. In fact, we are in a family with Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you have ever been ashamed to, call, to claim a brother or a sister, like an actual brother or sister. I, I, uh, it's live streamed, but you kind of understand, like there's been times as a, as a person where I'm like, yeah, that's my brother. <laughs> ah, that's my sister. But what's so neat about it, because of the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ, Christ doesn't do that for us. 
I would assume he'd have to, right? Like if I was in heaven looking down at me, I'd be like, eh, that's my son. But not Jesus. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. He's not ashamed to call us his. And, and listen to me, that is because of the sufficiency of the cross. The cross settled everything. It paid all of it. It was a sufficient enough uh, payment for all of my sins to be removed so that my standing, even my standing, even God's view of me is one where he is not ashamed of me. And that again is hard to reconcile in my tiny little finite brain, uh, but that's what the cross did. It was a sufficient payment. And I want you to keep that idea of sufficient payment. Uh, We'll see it in a minute, but listen, God never writes checks he can't pay. Okay, hold on to that idea. When God said, no, I paid that, that check's not bouncing. Okay, it's settled. It's done. And that's eternal security. Okay, and we're going to see some of those tones in a few moments that when God said it's done, he says, well, it's so done. I'm not even ashamed of him. It's so done. I know everything he's done. And I'm, I still call them brethren. Uh, that's the sufficiency of Jesus sacrifice, right? Because he was as the captain of our salvation. He was perfected. It was finished. Total in in full. Now, verse number 13, we're getting to our new stuff. It says, and again, which is actually a reference to another Old Testament passage, which we already already saw last time we were together. He says, and again, a reference, I will put my trust in him. And again, another Old Testament reference, behold, uh, I and the children which God hath given me. Uh, Verse number 14 says, for as much then as the children. Now, we did mention it, and I'll mention it again. This theme of children is a bit of a... uh, bit of a poke. Um, now understand, let me pop quiz you. Uh, to whom was the book of Hebrews written? Gentiles or Jews? Jews. Okay, good. Yeah, Hebrews. Um, so this is a bit of a poke, but it's a poke to save people. And it's a clarification to saved Jewish people. And whenever you find in the Old Testament, the idea of children being spoken of, it's normally speaking of the children of, of Israel. And yet the author of Hebrews just tied back three different times in the previous verse. And again, and again, it is written just tied this phrase children, not to the Jews, but to the many sons brought to glory. So these prophecies of old were promises of God's children whom he would be unashamed to call brethren. Uh, And so now look at the verse again, uh, verse number 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. Now that's important too, because Jewish exceptionalism was based on the fact that they were of the flesh and blood of Abraham. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the children of Israel. He's talking about the children he's redeemed to himself, those many sons brought back to glory, in that they tasted humanity, that they tasted flesh and blood, not not like that, and that they partook in flesh and blood. Notice what it says. He also himself likewise took part of the same. Notice it continues. That so that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil. Now, put a pin in that last statement, okay? He destroyed him that had power of death, the devil. Well, what does that mean? Hold on to that. We're going we're gonna to come back to that. The primary point is the beginning of the verse. We will come back to the last one. So let's focus on that first part. As a man, Jesus partook in flesh and blood. He became flesh and blood, came under the law. And and because he was under the law and died as a man, perfected as the captain of our salvation, took on a physical body, and in doing so, destroyed the power of death and the devil. Again, that is Jesus dying in our place. That is Christ becoming man so that our death could be satisfied. Because by one man, sin entered, and then by one man, 
sin was atoned for. And so he had to be a man. Angels could not be sent. In fact, you're going to find some of that uh, in this particular passage. Uh, and so this idea, let's, let's jump to that last idea that in, in his death, in his physical human body dying, he destroyed the power of death and the power the devil had. Um, notice what it says at the very end. It says, destroyed him that hath pa- the power of death. So what, is that, what does that mean? Um, you've probably heard, you know, well, you know, when Jesus died, he bought us back from Satan. Um, not true. Jesus' death had everything to do with satisfying God's wrath, not paying a payment to Satan. Satan doesn't possess the souls of man, but here it does say he possesses the power of death. So does that mean that he can kill people? Does that mean that, you know, he's like the death angel? Well, certainly not. Uh, In fact, think about this. Satan was the first cause of sin. And because of sin, the law entered. And when the law came, the penalty came, and the penalty of sin has and will always be death. Satan does not hold the keys of death and hell. He never did. In fact, we know assuredly from Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, that Jesus holds the keys of death and hell and that he is the one in his death. He destroyed the power of the one who causes death. He doesn't, he doesn't manage death. He causes death. He doesn't own the uh, rights to death. He brings in death when he obscures the goodness of God and lies. In fact, the Hebrew word for Satan is Satan. And it's just a transliterated word into the English. And it simply means deceiver, one who deceives. That's the power that Satan possesses. He doesn't have the power to possess God's people, but he does still have the power to deceive them. He has the power to lie them into addiction and lie them into bondage. And that lie and that sin is the power of death that's being referenced here. And that Jesus, when he died as a man, partook in fleshly nature and died on the cross, he then overcame the power and destroyed not only death, but him that has the power to cause death, which again brings us back into the garden relationship with our Redeemer. So not only did he destroy the destroyer, keep on reading, verse 15, and delivering them. Now here we go again with pronouns, right? And uh, this them is is those who are saved. uh, Again, when I say us, I'm assuming you're saved. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, let me just sidebar for a second. Jesus died in your place. You and I deserve death because we are sinners and the law came and the law condemned us. The law shows us that we have taken the name of God in vain and we've broken the Sabbath day and we've dishonored our parents and we've lusted and we've lied and we've stolen and we've coveted and we're all guilty. And James in the New Testament says this, if you offended one point, you're guilty of all. So we're all sinners. And because of that sin, the penalty is very clearly established. And God is the universe judge has to uphold righteousness and holiness. He is bound by his law to enforce the law. The law says you're guilty. The law says the penalty is death. And if you die without Christ, you're guilty of that penalty. So God made a way to send his son to die in our place so that he would take the wrath of God, that he would take the weight of sin, that he would take the punishment, and that God's wrath could be satisfied and brought back into balance. And that gift that Jesus purchased for us is offered to all mankind freely, whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life. What a blessing. So if you're not saved, you need to be saved. But when I say us, I'm assuming you're saved. And so verse number 15 is for those who have trusted Christ as their savior. And verse 15 again, and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 
What a good observation of humanity. Here's what he said. Jesus, by taking on human flesh, partaking of flesh and blood, destroying the power of him that could bring death. The Bible says that he delivered us through who through fear were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Think about before you got saved. And, and maybe I assume you can remember I was a teenager. I remember living in that who through fear all their life lived in bondage because of the fear of death because of the fear of what would happen next, because of the fear of destruction, because of the fear of judgment. You realize that God built that into humanity on purpose? It's the warning light. It's the rumble strip in our, in our created being. In fact, Paul says it this way, to the Gentiles who have no law are a law unto themselves. They know they're wrong. They know they're walking in obscurity. They know there's judgment coming. They know they're sinning. And God built that into humanity, but Jesus freed us from all of that. He set us free, who once walked their entire lifetime in fear, he now sets at liberty. And uh, it's such a beautiful thing. Let, Let me read the verse again, and let me get back to my notes. It says, and delivered them who through fear of death, and again, death used to grip us. If you're saved today, you don't need to fear death. Who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And again, as a man, Jesus, as a man, liberated me from sin. He liberated me from the law. He liberated me from death itself. He liberated me from the one who had the ability to bring death. He he liberated me from even the fear of death. And having buried saints, and again, I've I've done many funerals here. I did many funerals in Lompoc. Uh, Occasionally, I'll do funerals for people who aren't even a part of the church, just as a service to the community to preach the gospel. But having done that and having buried saints... Let me say this, and I don't mean this to be insensitive. The grave is a t- the ground is a terrible place to put a body if that's where it ends. Yeah. It's a cold, hard place yeah. to, 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 to lower a body in and to put dirt on top of it and to say goodbye. But here's the beautiful thing. It's a borrowed tomb. Jesus, who was the first fruits of the resurrection, the Colossians says it this way, the firstborn of the dead. He is the firstborn of every creature. He is, the, he is the one who conquered the grave before anybody else, but he will not be the last. And so every saint we put into the ground, we put into the ground as an act of faith. You understand that? And I don't mean to get uh, un, uh, extra biblical here, but that's the reason that I don't believe in cremation. And I know that God can gather all the dust and all matter can't be created or destroyed, but the Jews buried bodies in tombs because they knew someday, Job said, yet in my flesh will I see God. The worms may destroy my body, but my body's coming back. God's going to bring it back to him. And again, if you have a relative who cremated, again, God is a, again, God is able to bring all things back. The land and the sea give up their dead, okay? There's not full bodies in the sea. It's, it's been dispersed and, and whatnot. But understand this, burial is an act of faith. It's an act of faith and a promise God made to us. It's an act of faith and a promise that we don't see yet, but someday we will. And again, Jesus delivered us as a man in his death from the power and fear of death who were one time through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Let's continue reading in verse number 16. It says, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels. This is a hearkening back to the original point. He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. And so again, this don't, don't get lost in, in trying to over-doctrinalize uh, this. Um, there are funny terms for, do- for certain doctrines in the Bible, and angel, the study of angels is my absolute, I think it's hilarious. Um, so there's like, you know, soteriology and eschatology, eschatology being the study of end times. My favorite doctrinal word, angelology. Like, they didn't even try hard on that one. They just, 
They just threw ology at the end of it. And uh, so don't get too caught up in here trying to understand the theology of angels, but it does say this. Angels couldn't redeem us. It does say this, that a man had to die. But it couldn't just be any other man. It couldn't have been Casey on the cross. Casey would have had to die for his own sins. It had to be the blood of God shed and the perfect blood of God shed. Jesus couldn't come and sin and then die. He'd have been dying for his own self. But he took upon him the form of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, but not the nature of angels. And that's because the whole point, don't get caught up in trying to understand the minutia. The whole point is this. Angels are not better than our Redeemer. Jesus is better than all of them. Even if they could deliver a law, Jesus delivered a better one. Okay? Uh, even if they are spiritual beings, Jesus was our redeemer as a man. Christ is better. Again, the whole assertion of the last chapter that we've been diving into. And because he's better, and you could go back to, I think it's verse number one of chapter two, and he says, therefore, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Because he is better, let's hold to that. Let's not worship false gods or things you wouldn't, the Jews wouldn't call them gods, but their heart had begun to worship them uh, as they did with Moses. And so as a man, he redeemed us. Verse number 17. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. For all of this to work, he had to be a man. For the plan of salvation, there had to be a second Adam who was perfect. And that's what that verse is saying, that he might be a merciful, not only a redeemer, but a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. So not only did he come to be our redeemer, but he also came to be our mediator, our priest, also our sanctifier. And uh, we're actually cracking the door on something we're going to see later. We're going to see Moses next, but ultimately we're going to get to Aaron and the high priest and that Jesus was made a better high priest than Aaron. And so we're cracking the door on that just a little bit. Uh, But I want you to read the rest of the verse. Let's start at the beginning and get a run and start at it. Verse 17, wherefore in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Reconciliation, right? We don't have checkbook uh, registers too much anymore. A lot of us do our online banking or have apps that do it for us. But back in my day, uh, when I first got my, yeah, you're welcome. Um, When I first got my checkbook back in 2012, I'm just kidding. Um, I was younger than that. We did the register, right? This went out, this came in. This went out, this went, this came in. And it wasn't reconciled until it was even, until it was settled. And you realize what that verse just said. If, if you need any other verse beyond this for eternal security, you're not, you're, you don't understand this verse. It says that he brought us into reconciliation, meaning that it is settled. So understand this. Think about it in terms of checking. That's why I said God doesn't write checks he can't cash. God doesn't write the check and say, yeah, I reconciled them. Oh, but they sinned again. Oh, I can't pay that. Oh, that's not settled. Oh, that's not brought, brought back into balance. That, oh, I, I, I had an overdraft. God doesn't overdraft. The blood of Jesus was sufficient for all of your sins, present, past, and future. Please understand, before you got saved, Jesus died, all of your sins were future, right? Jesus died 2,000 years ago. When I sin, if God tarries his coming and I'm still alive in September 15th, those sins were still after the cross. The cross happened 2,000 years ago, but it paid for it all. Because of the word, if no other, and there are plenty, but if no other word, then reconciled. The account was brought into balance. There's nothing I expense that God hasn't paid. There's no, and that again is not, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, right? But the fact of the matter is, all of my sins are reconciled. God doesn't write checks he can't pay. So if you're here and you think, well, but what if I sin? What if I fail? What if I, you will, you will. The what if is how long are you going to make it? You're going to make it to lunch? Probably not. (laughs) 
You're going to make it to dinner? What if I make it to dinner? You're not going to make it the rest of your life without sinning. You are a sinner. It's part of your condition. Now, he saved us from that, and he liberates us from that, and we can walk in the newness of life, right? If we're buried with him, we rise with him to walk in the newness of life. But the fact of the matter is, God has settled it to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Let's look at verse number 18. For in that he himself hath suffered, I love this, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. That word succor means to help. So, so this is, again, you're going to see this tone later and probably more familiar with the idea uh, that he is uh, touched by the feelings of our infirmity, right? We have not a high priest who cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmity, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Same, same concept, just this is said first and that's said later in this book. But understand this, that Jesus knows every corner of your reality. That brings me so much comfort because sometimes it's easy to feel like we're alone, right? But the Bible says there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Well, no one's ever been this lonely or no one's ever been this tempted or no one's ever been so maligned. That's, sap- that's simply not true. There's no temptation taken you that other men haven't felt. But here's the reality. Jesus was tempted in every point you were. So he was, he was tempted. Jesus, Jesus, no doubt, was tempted with discouragement. Jesus was touched by every corner of your life and mine. He mourned. He, the Bible says this. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was bruised. You ever been bruised? He was betrayed. He was alone. He was misunderstood. He had his words twisted. You ever have your words twisted? He had his words twisted often. So you said you're going to destroy the temple? Insurrection. Not exactly what he was saying. He was abandoned. He was misrepresented. He was buried. Uh, forgive me, he, he, he buried relatives. He was dishonored by his brethren. He was without honor in his own country. He was maligned, hunted by Herod. He grew up in a blended family. He was raised by a stepdad. He was spit on. He was lied about. He was gossiped about. And because of that, he can help. He can succor. He can be present in your burdens and in mine. We'll go ahead and end there.